You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us here at Washington Post Live. Today, our guest is Jonathan Carl, the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News and the author of a brand new book, Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. We will discuss later whether we really think this is the final act of the Trump show. But first of all, welcome, Jonathan, and congratulations. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be here with you. You know, Jonathan, I mean, there have, this is the season for books about Trump, and, and you get to the point where you think, what else is there to learn? And yet this book has generated so many headlines and so much new and I might add disturbing detail, um, which I think really makes it a, a, a real triumph of both reporting and analysis. Well, thank and, you know, I mean, there, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just I was just going to say that there there's been so much and there's there's been a lot of great reporting done about what was going on during the Trump years, and, and a lot of it has focused on the behavior of of Trump himself. And there's there, as you know there's a lot of that in this book, but what I tried to do was to was to get around the, the structure around him uh, that enabled him uh, the 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 atmosphere inside that West Wing and, and in that administration beyond the outrages or the outbursts from Trump or you know about Trump by his top people, but really to get into what was actually happening. And, and, and the situation was more disturbing than I think most people realized uh, at, at the time. And, and I think um, it was also, the, the situation really did come a lot closer to the overthrow of the election, I think, than a lot of people realized uh, watching it in real time uh, and even in a lot of the reporting sense. I mean, that is the, the number of sort of close calls you document in this book is just extraordinary. I mean, I, I think that we got much closer to a to a far greater crisis than what we faced, and obviously we faced a tremendous crisis, unprecedented in American history. Uh, but there were many moments where uh, things could have gone off the rails uh, far more significantly, uh, and and were in in some ways our democracy was saved uh, by people that were. That were you you would you would not really think would be the typical profiles in courage, but people who stood up at critical junctures and said no to Donald Trump. There were many people that enabled him uh, and pushed him and played into everything he wanted to do. Uh, but you know, there's we, there's a story uh, in in the book about about Michael Flynn um, right after he got his pardon from Trump, um, right right before Thanksgiving uh, of last year, uh, reaching out. Uh, to somebody he thought was going to be an ally in the Pentagon, uh, uh, Ezra Cohen, uh, somebody who had worked with him in the National Security Council, had worked under him when he was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he wanted uh, to get him to start. He, Cohen had a top position at the Pentagon, uh, Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. I mean, the special operations forces fall under his uh, purview uh, at at the Pentagon, and he wanted him to to activate those forces to seize voting machines in the United States. 
and to do who knows what else. Um, this is while Michael Flynn is talking about things like imposing martial law uh, and rerunning the election. Crazy talk uh, if it's just one retired military officer. But he reached out and tried to get somebody who he thought was going to be an ally at the Pentagon to help him do it. Cohen didn't go along with it and told him the election was over. And um, you know, you wonder what would have happened if if he hadn't. Pence, Karen, I mean, do you know what? I, one thing I tried to deal with, I deal with this a bit in the book, but you know, the, the, the I, I, I go exhaustively into the pressure campaign on Pence and what he was facing was much more than we realized at the time uh, to act on January 6th, to throw out those Biden electoral votes and give the election to Trump. Pence did not, you and I know, everybody who has studied a minute of constitutional law knows he had no authority to do that. But what if he had? What if he had? What if he said, okay, we're throwing out Pennsylvania, we're throwing out Georgia, we're throwing out Wisconsin. What does Nancy Pelosi do? Grab the gavel and start, you know, hitting back? I mean, what, 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 what happens? It's chaos. Okay, it goes to the Supreme Court. How exactly does it go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court and what army enforces it? Um, our system depends ultimately to a, to a degree that those who ha have power will behave in a way that is honorable. Uh, and, and those who don't, if it happens, it's a one-off, they can be dealt with, they can be punished, they can face repercussions. But when the whole system, when the whole executive branch moves in a way that is lawless, how is that dealt with? How is that prevented? Well, well, let's talk about the moment I think that has probably gotten more headlines even than any other in your book, which is when you are working on the book and you have an interview with President, the then ex-President Trump, and you ask him about the fact that his supporters were storming the Capitol and chanting, hang Mike Pence. And Trump describes this as common sense on the part of his supporters. You, you've got the audio. It's, it's really striking. But I've been really intrigued by the reaction among Republicans since this has come out. Um, the quite frankly, the, the silence there was I, I know Senator Barrasso from Wyoming was on one of the Sunday shows and he was asked, what do you think of this? And you just sort of watch him squirm rather than denouncing Donald Trump for saying it was common sense to want to basically kill his vice president. Uh, have you been surprised by the reaction to this? Well, I. I, I write this in, in the conclusion of the book, describe this interview in detail. It was a very strange interview because Trump not only did not have any bit of regret or remorse for anything that happened on January 6th, he actually seemed to relish in the day. Uh, his view seemed to be that finally people had come out to fight for him. Uh, he thought it was the, he told me it was the biggest crowd he had ever spoken before on January 6th. That's by the way, not true, although it was a very big crowd. Um, he, um, he, he said that it, he, he spoke about it as, as if it were one of the greatest days of his, of his presidency. And, you know, whether or not he's saying that about the riot or the rally that preceded it, you know, there's always, you know, what, what, what exactly is he talking about? But then that, that's when I pressed, well, how about Mike Pence? And 
I write in the book that, you know, the question to Republicans, all Republicans, Republicans, Republican leaders in Congress, Republicans, uh, rank and file voters, can you still support somebody who speaks out in defense of somebody that wanted to murder Vice President Pence, who defends the murderous chance of people as they're invading the Capitol uh, saying, hang Mike Pence? Can you still support that? And Brasso got asked that. Um, George Stephanopoulos was the one that asked the question, and he pressed him like four times before he finally got Brasso to say that he disagreed with that. <laughs> he disagreed that uh, with that, but but didn't condemn Trump for saying it. Uh, so I, I think it's a question that has to be put to every Republican, um, every Republican in a position of authority. Can you still, especially with the idea that Trump may well run for president again, and if he does, at least starts out as the leading contender clearly for the Republican nomination. Can you support somebody like that, somebody who says something like that? And, and you made a point earlier that actually touches on a question that was raised by someone in our, in our audience in advance of, of this interview, uh, Steve from Idaho, if we could put it up on the screen. Um, Steve asks, you know, what would Democrats have done if Pence did not accept the electoral votes. So, so there, there are there are a couple of questions. That's one which which I uh, I think is a really good one, as as I mentioned before. And 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 the, you know, the answer is is unclear. They obviously would have objected. They would have gone to the Supreme Court. But again, how does that all happen? The the Constitution is very specific about what must happen uh, to go through a, a transition of power. And, and that January 6th date has to be certified. The electoral votes have to be open. They have to be counted. They have to be sent by the states. They have to be signed. They have to be originals. They can't be copies. You know, there's, there's a whole series of things by the Constitution. So if something disrupts that, then what? The Constitution doesn't give us any guidance as to what happens if that gets disrupted. So a related question that I deal with in, in the book is, the electoral votes themselves, which are sent by certified mail uh, by each of the states, again, signed in a very specific way, all outlined uh, in the Constitution, um, are kept in those mahogany boxes that we see getting you know, walked into the, into the House chamber for the counting of the votes that are opened up as the states are called and counted and tabulated. Well, as the, as the Capitol was getting evacuated, a very... Uh, level-headed person on the Senate parliamentarian's office grabbed those boxes and took them out with the senators as they ran away. And then, of course, as you remember, the Senate floor was 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 breached. And what if they had gotten hold of the boxes and destroyed the ballots? Now you say, okay, well, the states can just send them in again, but there's no actual mechanism in law for how that how that happens. Because again, they have to be certified by certain dates. They have to be originals. They can't be copies. Um, and and if you remember, Karen, uh, one of the striking things about the riot was that the room that got ransacked uh, the most, I mean, really just destroyed as if they were really looking for something. It looked like, you know, a burglar team going through and trying to get a hold of something um, was, the, was the parliamentarian's office. And I believe that those rioters who were very keenly focused, this was not a protest, it wasn't, it, this was an effort to stop a, a transition of power. 
I believe they were searching for those ballots uh, and, and with the intent of destroying them. And they were saved again by a junior staffer whose name did, did, didn't want her name to be used, um, doesn't want to be highlighted for, for doing this. But again, that small step, what would have happened? And how confident are you feeling about the capacity, the abilities of this special committee, the January 6th committee, to get to the bottom of all of this? Um, it has subpoena power, but the subpoenas are being defied by um, former key, former White House officials. There's a, a huge battle going on that's going to end up in the courts over whether the National Archives has to release the, the records, the, the paper of the Trump White House. How optimistic are you about this committee, its work, and its ability to sort of find all the kind of connective tissue that you were talking about? I'm actually very optimistic about the work of this committee. And, and before I tell you why, let me give you what they're up against. Um, in addition to all the obstruction that you mentioned, it's 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 how dramatic and effective must their report and their presentation be to sway minds of those who are trying to deny what happened. Think about what happened with the House impeachment managers when they came out and made their presentation and it was so emotionally powerful and it clearly had an effect on the senators as they watched the video of the reconstruction of that day. It was very powerful and yet within a few months you had members of Congress downplaying what happened as if they had not seen all of that or witnessed all of that. So they actually have to go beyond what the House impeachment managers did quite dramatically. And that's going to be hard because the House impeachment managers did a very effective job, but it wasn't effective enough. I, the reason why I'm bullish on this, and there's been a lot of criticism. I've seen people out there say, why are they doing these interviews behind closed doors? Why did they wait so long to do subpoenas? Uh, what are they doing? Why are they dragging their feet? Where, what is happening? Shouldn't they? This investigative work takes time. Uh, you think about like the Army McCarthy hearings, which were so dramatic in terms of the television of it all and the and we, and we all remember and, 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 and so pivotal in bringing down uh, Joe McCarthy. Well, the, the, that committee worked for months and compiled thousands and thousands of pages of depositions. Um, they, they were not seen at all by the public. They were behind closed doors. They were developing a case. And I think that's what this committee is doing. They're, they're doing a lot more work than we see uh, out there uh, for public consumption. We, we see the, the subpoenas that get denied and all that, but they are interviewing people that we don't even know about. Uh, over 100 interviews uh, have been conducted. We, uh, we, we don't even know the full extent of who. And I think that's all right because they need to get this right. It needs to lead to a dramatic moment, uh, likely late summer of next year, uh, where they have public hearings and they will have advantages that the House impeachment managers did not have. They will be able to have actual witnesses. They will have, I, I believe that they will, I, you know, I mean, we'll see that these cases are so immensely important um, in terms of the executive privilege. But particularly if they win that fight, they will have access to information that was simply not available to the House impeachment managers. And even now, this like the Steve Bannon case, uh, which 
I believe, and I'm not a lawyer, Karen, but I've talked to a lot of lawyers, I, I believe Bannon's going to lose that case. Even if nothing else happens, that's extremely important to reestablish something that was uh, that was destroyed under the Trump White House, which is the notion that if you are subpoenaed by Congress, you must answer that subpoena. And there's consequences if you don't. But I'm bullish. So, I, I, I think they're going to do important and serious work. So, so let's talk about Steve Bannon. He's in the middle of this legal wrangle claiming executive privilege, even though by the time in question he had actually been fired by Trump, was not working at the, the White House. What is Steve Bannon's role today in Trump world? And specifically, in to what degree is he the person kind of in charge of laying the predicate for Trump 2024? Well, first, let, let me let me take a step back and, and talk about his role on January 6th, which I think the committee uh, is, is very keenly interested in getting getting a hold of. My sense of Bannon's role in the lead up to January 6th was that his single most important and highest priority was getting a pardon from Donald Trump. If you remember, Bannon was going to jail. Uh, he was facing, um, you know, he, he, he the, the accused of fraud, committing fraud against Trump supporters, um, fleecing Trump supporters, profiteering off Trump supporters in this, you know, we will build the wall campaign. And the idea that Bannon was able to get a pardon from Donald Trump against crimes of, of, of they were at, at its root taking advantage of Donald, of Trump's supporters. And Trump's name is extraordinary. So I think what Steve Bannon was doing in those radio broadcasts, those podcasts uh, before January 6th, where he was saying, you know, all hell's going to break loose, you know, buckle up, you know, buckle in, you know, they, we're, 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 this is our day, this is our time. He was speaking to Trump. He was, he wanted to show himself to be the guy that was, that was doing more than anybody uh, on, on the, on the issue that Trump cared singularly about. And it worked. He got his pardon on January 20th. What's he doing now? I mean, you know, Bannon was exiled by Trump. I mean, it's really an extraordinary comeback. Um, but he, he is, he, I, I don't get the sense that he is strategically laying the groundwork in the way that he, he did in the first campaign. Um, but, but he is out there channeling, uh, the, the most extreme version of Donald Trump and he's still doing it even as he faces these charges with his podcast. So we'd also, I mean, there's so much news in this book about, about so many people. I wanted to sort of do a little bit of a lightning round here sure. and get, get, go through some names and talk about some of the things that we have learned about them through your book. Uh, Let's start with Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, and I think at this point, if if you were to put money on it, likely to be the House Speaker uh, in uh, January of 2023. What did we learn about Kevin McCarthy? Well, I, I, we, we learned about Kevin McCarthy is that is that he tried to play uh, both sides of this. That he clearly knew that the election allegations were bogus. Uh, he clearly had his own personal problems with the idea of overturning an election. Uh, but he also knew that he, to be the leader of that conference, had to be on board. 
and I kind of outline in, in this. Okay, I'll, I'm trying to make it a lightning round. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, there's there's a lot on Kevin McCarthy, uh, but but that he he really felt that by being close to Donald Trump, he could keep Donald Trump from doing things that were even more destructive, and also that that was his path towards becoming speaker. Um, and what you learn in the book is that Trump does not repay that loyalty one whit. Trump is. Uh, bitter with with Kevin McCarthy, bitter at Kevin McCarthy, even after all Kevin McCarthy had done for him uh, and sacrificed his own principles uh, because he doesn't think McCarthy fought hard enough for him. And and you have that story in there about where are the statues to Jeff Flake. Do you mind telling that one again? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I took a walk with Kevin McCarthy on January 2nd. It was a beautiful Saturday uh, right before sunset. Uh, and we, we, we walked almost the entire mall. And uh, there's a photo in the book, actually, of me and him both wearing masks up in the uh, up in the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, I, I was trying to figure out what he was asking and what he was going to do on January 6th. Was he going to? I said, you you have a, you actually have a chance to have your moment in history here, because if you step up on the House floor and you say this is all nonsense, that Joe Biden won the election, and part of our what makes our democracy great is that we fight hard during elections. And then we have a, a peaceful transmission of power and those that lose uh, win the winner, wish the winner best for our, the sake of our country. And and I said, this is, you can really, you know, it's the House Republicans. You're the leader of the House Republicans. You're the one guy left who can have an impact here. And he was like, ah, you know, he did demurred. He wasn't telling me what he was going to do. And I said, I said, who knows? I was trying to be dramatic. I mean, I, I was exaggerating for effect. I said, you know, who knows? Maybe if you do the right thing, there'll be a statue of you out here someday. You know, we're out on the mall with all the statues. And he laughed at me and he said, yeah, where's the statue of Jeff Flake? Where's the statue of that guy from Tennessee? He was talking about Bob Corker. And those were the two senators that stood up to Trump most strongly uh, during his first uh, year in office. And both were rewarded with political obscurity uh, out of the Senate. And his point was they weren't effective and um, and then and now they're gone and nobody even knows who they are. How about Governor DeSantis of Florida? Um, much talked about as the potential possible potential Republican front runner if Trump doesn't run in 2024. What did we learn about him? Well, I think DeSantis uh, is going to have to be very careful uh, because um, the more he looks like the best uh, option for Republicans, the more Trump is likely to turn on him. Uh, and that's a common theme in, in this. Uh, uh, you know, Trump rewards loyalty uh, by by being disloyal. And uh, there, there was a, I thought, a critical moment when, at CPAC uh, earlier this year where uh, DeSantis in a straw poll without Trump did almost as well as Trump did when, when Trump was in the poll. So. I think I think that uh, if I were DeSantis, I would be very careful. And what about Donald Trump's favorite uh, talk show host, Tucker Carlson? Uh, Tucker Carlson, I, I, I remind uh, everybody in, in the book of, of a role that Tucker Carlson played, which was very short lived, um, but uh, you know, significant in the moment it happened. Tucker Carlson went after Sidney Powell right after that disastrous RNC press conference with Rudy Giuliani with the, the hair dye 
coming down the sides of his face when they were talking about releasing the Kraken and all the evidence they had of, of this massive fraud to steal votes. And Tucker Carlson went on his show and said that he had been at, all day long uh, reaching out to, uh, to Sidney Powell, asking her for the evidence and that she was refusing. And in the last conversation, she got quite nasty about it and said, don't contact me again. So it looked like Tucker Carlson was positioned to potentially be a truth teller. Of course, it didn't last very long. Um, and Tucker Carlson, um, which is strange. Karen, I know you and I have both known Tucker Carlson for a long, long, long time. And remember when he was uh, quite an effective, good writer, uh, you know, conservative journalist, uh, not particularly partisan, more ideological. Um, but he's he's probably the most influential voice out there on on the far right, uh, other than Trump. Well, you you talk about how how the book really focuses on the people around Trump, who, you know, by the end of his presidency, the the few kind of institutionalists who were there at the beginning, John Kelly, the first chief of staff, those people are all gone, and essentially he Trump has surrounded himself with people whose loyalty, whose fealty is not to the presidency or the constitution, it is to Donald Trump. And so I wanna ask you about one of the most intriguing, uh, and to me, one of the most uh, terrifying characters in the book, who is a 29-year-old named Johnny McEntee. Talk about him. He is the, 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 the single most powerful uh, force in the Trump White House in 2020 that most people have never heard of. Uh, Johnny McEntee, who, had, who was one of the very first people I met when I started covering the Trump campaign. He was just out of college a couple years out of UConn, uh, where he'd been a, a backup quarterback. Uh, and, and he was carrying Trump's bags on the campaign. He had a title trip director, but he was largely, you know, somebody that carried his bags. And he played that role in the beginning uh, of, of the Trump White House until he was fired by John Kelly for issues that came up in his background check. But he came back in the beginning of 2020 and was put in charge of the presidential personnel office. And one of his first acts there was to basically get rid of all the people that staffed that office. That That is the most important HR department maybe in the world or in the United States. I mean, it, it's in charge of the hiring and firing of all 4,000 plus uh, political appointees in the executive branch from the director of national intelligence to the Secretary of Treasury uh, to uh, you know ambassadors around the world, and uh, he was put in charge of that, and he staffed it with a, with a group of his friends. These are people that were all you know for the most part in their twenties. I, I, at least three of them that I know of had not graduated from college yet, and he set out uh, to uh, systematically rid the Trump administration of anybody who was not sufficiently loyal to the person of Donald Trump, and they did this. Uh, Karen, by doing a series of interviews uh, with officials very high and very low, out roughly it lasted about an hour. They would send two of these kids out and ask a series of questions. You know, do you support the policies of Donald Trump? If so, what policies? Do you support his desire to withdraw from Afghanistan? That was a question asked of of of, of a senior official at the Depart at the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Um, we noticed uh, in your files that you voted in a Democratic primary. Can you tell us why you did that? Uh, these were the kind of questions. Uh, that, that, and one of the most absurd uh, examples is one of McEntee's people found out that an assistant of Ben Carson's, Ben Carson, 
I mean, few people are more loyal to Donald Trump than Penn Carson, but he found out that one of his assistants had liked an Instagram post of Taylor Swift. Um, and this was an issue because the, the first one was, was telling people to vote, but the second photo in the post, Taylor Swift was holding a tray of cookies that had the Biden-Harris logo on them. We can't, so Mark Meadows actually called the top official at HUD uh, in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, this is right before the election, and said, "What is this? We can't have our people liking, you know, social media posts that support uh, Joe Biden. We have to do something about this." I mean, this is the kind of thing that they were doing. But the reason why it's important, Karen, is that McEntee was able to get rid of officials that were not sufficiently loyal, and he was also able to. To, to frighten people into silence. So that when Trump took that dark, dark turn after the election, there was really nobody around him that was willing to question him, to push back on him, to rein him in, to challenge him, to say, I don't know, that's not really the right thing, because they were all either fired or scared into silence. And so that's Johnny McAtee, 29 years old, uh, bossing around cabinet secretaries and junior assistants and everybody in between. Well, Jonathan, I'm afraid we are running out of time now. This has been fascinating as is your book. I think uh, not as much from what we learn about our recent past as for what you suggest about our near future. So again, congratulations on this book, I do, I might quibble a bit with your subtitle of this being the final act of the Trump show. But again, congratulations and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. It's it's great to be with you. I, I am a, uh, I've been a huge fan of your reporting for a long, long time. So it's great to, it's great to be here with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.